the Essenes at Qumran. The Essenes are another well-known sect of the late Second Temple era mentioned by Josephus, Philo, and the Roman author Pliny the Elder, who recorded the existence of an Essene settlement between Jericho and Engedi on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Josephus provides us with several noteworthy descriptions of the Essenes, in contrast to the Pharisees, who accepted a combination of free will and predetermined fate. The Essenes believed that fate governs all things. Josephus expounds on the philosophy of the Essenes and reveals their partial rejection of the current temple's legitimacy, likely connected to the corruption they perceive inherent in the behavior of the priesthood as well as its very composition. Quote, the doctrine of the Essenes is this, that all things are best ascribed to God. They teach immortality of souls, and esteem that the rewards of the righteous are to be earnestly striven for, and when they send what they are dedicated to God into the temple, they do not offer sacrifices, because they have more pure illustration of their own, which account they are excluded from the common court of the temple, but offer their sacrifice themselves. End quote. Josephus provides much more detailed description of scenic life in his work, Jewish War. Quote, the Essenes last are Jews by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than other sects have. These Essenes reject the pleasures of, as an evil, esteem continence and the conquest over our passions to be virtue. They neglect wedlock but choose out other persons' children while they are pliable and fit for learning and esteem them to be of their kindred and form them according to their own manners. They do not absolutely deny the fitness of marriage, and the succession of mankind thereby continued. These men are the spicers of riches, and so very communicative as races are administration, nor is there any one to be found among them who had more than the other. For it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order, inasmuch that among them all there is no appearance of poverty or excess of riches. But every other possession are intermingled with every other's possessions, and so there is patrimony among all the brethren. End quote. Josephus continues his account of the Essenes by noting that they are found throughout Greater Judea and extend hospitality towards the members of their sect wherever they lived. Their piety was apparent in their dress, and they viewed simplicity of dress as a characteristic feature of their group. The religious rites of the group included a regimen of daily prayers and an overarching concern for ritual purity. It is typically assumed from the limited sources available that it seems were a piety-centered sect that might be described as aesthetic. Documents discovered at Qumran do indicate an elaborate process of selection and oaths similar to Essenic practices. The concept of community among both groups certainly stood in contrast to that of the Jew other Jewish movements. Many of them appear to have separated themselves for fear of ritual contamination. What is essential is nodding about the Essenes and the community at Qumran is their mutual sense of election, an emphasis on apocalyptic and prophetic or charismatic interpretation of scripture. Both groups saw themselves as reflecting the purest strand of Jewish faith firmly embodied in the Torah. Whether or not the Essenes or the community at Qumran arose in opposition to Hasmonean's assumption of priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem, their distrust of an opposition to the temple cult are quite clear. 
The writings of Qumran contain instructions detailing the smallest observance of the Torah. The community at Qumran, like their other Jewish contemporaries, regard observance of the Torah as a central element of Jewish identity. The Qumran sect divided the Torah into two categories. The first category was referred as Negle, or revealed law, reflected in the written text of Torah. The second category was referred as Nistar, or hidden laws. Was considered to have been only revealed to the sect. The document referred to as the rule of the community provides detail into the sect's emphasis on Torah and the procedure for community induction. Quote, Everyone who joins the council of the community shall enter the covenant of God in the presence of all the volunteers and shall take upon himself through a binding oath to return to the law of Moses according to everything which he God commanded with all his heart, in respect to which has been revealed from it to the sons of Sadok, the priests, who guard his covenant, who volunteer together for his truth, and to live by his will. And he shall establish by a covenant upon himself to separate himself from all men of iniquity who walk in the path of evil. For they have not been reckoned in his covenant, for they not search and did not study his laws, to know the secrets, Nistarot, in which they erred, incurring guilt, and the revealed Niglod they did violate defiantly. End quote. According to this passage, all Israel was held accountable for both the revealed and hidden laws, regardless of their membership in the sect. Secret laws were derived from divinely guided exegesis. Centrality of Torah within the worldview of Qumran is quite apparent. Implementation of the written law and derived laws comparable in concept to the halakha of the Pharisees became point of bitter contention. The community Qumran regarded as the growing body of Pharisaic halakha, referred to as the tradition of the fathers, as misguided and false. Their attacks upon the Pharisees also revealed the evolving nature of Pharisaic understanding of the Torah. Quote, the builders of the wall who followed thoroughly walked after the commander, the commander is the preacher about whom he, God of the prophet, said in Micah chapter 2 verse 6, quote, They shall surely preach, end quote. They even render impure their Holy Spirit, and in blasphemous terms open their mouths against the laws of the covenant of God, saying, They are not correct, and they spoke abomination about them. All these things the builders of the wall and divers of plaster did not understand. For one who raises wind and preaches falsehood preached to them, because of which God became angry with his entire congregation. End quote. The preceding passage, the builders of the wall along with the preacher commander, are regarded as miscredents. Two biblical passages serve to illuminate these references. Hosea chapter 5 verse 10 through 11 reads, quote, The commanders of Judah have acted like shifters of file boundaries. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is defrauded, robbed of red dress. End quote. According to Shiftman, this passage equates Ephraim with none other than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the builders of the wall who follow the laws enacted by the commander. The phrase builders of the wall is perhaps the most striking since it echoes the idea of building a fence around the Torah, quite familiar from later Mishnahic literature. Mishnahic literature appears to have 
played a considerable part in Qumranic thought, especially the notion of the apocalyptic revelation, emphasizing the coming climatic battle, an encounter between the faithful servant of God and those who transgress his instruction. Unlike the Yanaic circles previously described, the emphasis on revelation group interpretation or highly tuned messianic expectations did not circumvent the revelatory experience at Sinai and its covenantal and consequently halachic concerns and implications of the Essenes. The Zealots and the Sicarii The Zealots, or the Fourth Philosophy as Josephus refers to them, derived their anti-Roman sentiment from their religious views. Their name was taken from the fanatical zeal for God. Their founder, Judas the Galilean, reviled Jews who paid taxes to the Romans and accepted pagans as rulers. For Judas, no human ruler could be acknowledged or honored alongside God. Indeed, from their perspective, to do otherwise would have called into question their principal articles of faith. Judas and his followers proclaimed the open rule of God. The term Lord, implying rulership, was often substituted for God within Jewish circles at that time. The Ten Commandments, which were recited daily during this time, declare the following, quote, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other lords before me, End quote. The region of Galilee was generally characterized by a higher degree of zealousness for militant messianism than its Judean compatriots, quote, the Sicarii who fought in the war against Rome were known for their strict perseverance. They were also known as Galileans. End quote. Epictetus records an account of the Sicarii who fled to Egypt after the destruction of the temple. There was no one who was not amazed at their steadfastness, steadfastness and, call it what you will, the madness of the strength of mind of these victims. For although every kind of torture and physical maltreatment had been devised to use against them only for one purpose, namely to make them confess the emperor as their lord, not one of them yielded. On the contrary, they all preserved their self-control, which was greater than the compulsion. It seemed as though they accepted the tortures of and the fire with unfeeling bodies and almost joyous souls. It was the youthful age of the voice that astonished the spectators, most of all since no one of them let himself be persuaded to call the emperor lord. So far that the power of the temerity showed itself stronger than the weakness of their body. End quote. Even if the cells appeared only officially in the 60s, this did not represent a significant change of direction. These currents found support from the lower stratum society and gained support from more prominent groups like the Pharisees and even their, some aristocrats. For philosophy found its ranks comprised of an overwhelming number of Galileans. It became, as Gis Habermesh noted, more than just a family business, since at least five principal figures representative of militant messianism originated from Galilee. Hezekiah rebelled against Herodian rule during the second half of the first century before the Common Era. For Judas and his followers, subjection to Caesar was disloyalty to God. The rise of Hezekiah brought the young Herod the Great to task with his first major crisis. Herod's youthfulness at the age of 15 did not prevent him from successfully destroying Hezekiah and his followers. His execution led to the eventual rise of another Galilean during the last days of Herod the Great's reign, around the year 4 before the Common Era. Judas and his followers became martyrs. It is interesting that a comparison between the followers of Jesus made with none other than that Judas of Galilee and Theudas. 
in Acts, Rabbanan Gamaliel regarded Jewish followers of Jesus as a movement directed against Rome and not directed against Judaism. Judas of Galilee was a Pharisee espousing militant resistance against Rome. Therefore, we cannot view his movement as directed against Judaism in general. Theudas, in contrast, relied upon the expectation of a miracle to bring out his liberation. Though it is easily surmised that Jesus was no Judas of Galilee, the relative pacifism of Jesus did not make any less an opponent to Rome, at least in the eyes of the ruling officials. Proclaiming Jesus as king, whether physical or spiritual, was still a potential political menace. Judas of Galilee, or more popularly known as Judas the Galilean, made his de debut approximately 10 years later during the Roman census of 6 of the Common Era. For Judas and his followers, the future eschatological time of Judah of God's redemption was also at hand. God had become king, and all that needed to be done was to translate this into a political reality. The first religious connection to the cause of militant messianism, the collaboration of Judas with a Pharisee named Sadoc, established. Judas' origin appears to have been from Gamala, a town east of the Sea of Galilee. The Roman-Jewish War of 66 of the Common Era also found John ben Levi from the Upper Galilee among his most ardent and bloodiest leaders in Jerusalem. It quickly becomes apparent that Galilee and its inhabitants were regarded as more being predisposed to messianism and celibate movements. This trend continued into the 2nd century with the rise of the messianic leader of Bar Kokhba, whose origins were out of Galilee. Why is this so? Perhaps this must be linked to a more independent mindset stemming from the days of Ezra when the exiles began to return. These saw the region of Galilee under a considerably stronger degree of influence and control by non-Jewish occupants. During the time of the Maccabees, many Galileans fled south to Judea to find safety from the Seleucids. The returning refugees became fiercely protective of their Jewishness. There was an almost natural tendency among the populace towards aggressive acts against Rome. The Sadducees The Sadducees were well known to most readers because of the references extant in the New Testament documents. Yet the information given about them is the most limited of all sects existing in the Second Temple period. The origin of the Sadducees are relatively unknown, but they appear to have been established by the Hasmonean period along with the Pharisees during the reign of John Hyrcanus. Josephus records a switch by John Hyrcanus in party affiliation from the Pharisees to the Sadducees. They appear to have been primarily associated with the higher escalons of society and included various ranking priests, though there is no reason to limit their ranks to the wealthy. The Sadducees appear to have been represented mainly by wealthy individuals. Their ability to influence the theological agenda of the last century be before the destruction of the temple appears to have been limited. Some scholars have attempted to characterize the Sadducees as highly Hellenized Jewish party. There is nothing to suggest that their circles were any more Hellenized than their contemporaries, other than the fact that wealthy individuals were found among them and likely represented this proportionate percentage of their ranks. Josephus does provide some references regarding some of their theological perspectives. Quote, and for the Sadducees, they take away fate and say there is no such thing, that the events of human affairs are not at its disposal. But they suppose that all actions are in our own power, so that we are ourselves the cause of what is good, and receive what is evil from our own folly. 
end quote. Josephus expands on the description of Sadducean outlook by noting the rejection of an afterlife. Quote, but Sadducees are those who compose the second order and take away faith entirely and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing and or not doing what is evil. And they say that to act what is good or what is evil is that man's own choice and that the one and the other belongs so to everyone that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief in the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. End quote. So the Sian aristocracy was undoubtedly educated, and it is somewhat likely that their exposure to Greco-Roman philosophy may have formed their views on faith. Regarding other matters of theology, they adopted positions which stood mainly in contrast to those of the Pharisees. In matters of halakha, it is clear that they all had little recourse other than to follow the traditions either established or endorsed by the Pharisees of the day. Quote, but the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoys upon them. For they think it is, it is an instance to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. But this doctrine is received but by a few, yet they are able to do almost nothing of themselves. For when they became magistrates, as they are unwillingly and by force sometimes ob obliged to do, they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees because of the multitude will not otherwise bear them. End quote. The Sadducees appear as opponents of the Pharisees in rabbinic literature. The Sadducees are also depicted as denying the validity of the oral Torah of the Pharisees as opposed to the literal approach to the observance of the Torah. But that depiction may be somewhat deceptive. Sadducees certainly did not support Pharisaic halakha or Jesus. It does not necessarily imply that the Sadducees did not possess their own body of legal material that they consider similarly authoritative. Chapter 5 The Jewish Supporters of Jesus Though independent Hasmonean rule lasted less than a hundred years, it proved sufficient to spur memories of an ancient Israelite self-determination. The faithful and devout who had given their lives for the Torah and the struggle against Hellenism during the Maccabean conflict ultimately lost out to a greater evil than that posed by Hellenism. The sibling rivalry between the Hasmoneans' heirs, Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II, inevitably led to the rise of Herod Antiper and the ultimate intervention of Roman power in the year 63 before the Common Era. The Jews of Greater Judea, however, never lost their memory of their brief years of independence. Messianism, or the belief in a divinely appointed individual who restored Israel's fortunes, was a core element of many Jewish movements in the Second Temple period. Differing perspectives on the character of Messianic figures existed, and it is difficult to produce a sweeping generalization of normative Jewish views of such prominent figures. The idea of a distinctive messiah with a specific role is not quickly established across party lines. As Anthony Saldarini notes, Christian interpreters have often attributed Jews of the Second Temple era a uniform belief in an eschatological and political messiah, ignoring the simple fact that not all Jews affirm either an afterlife or a climatic end of the present-day world order. The widespread idea of all Jews awaiting a messiah should not be maintained. 
to a consensus on the mission of a messianic figure cannot be definitely established, some sources, especially in the Old Testament, through the epigrapha, provide a much more ex explicit indication of what some groups and authors envision. Two principal types of thought can be identified regarding the era that a messianic figure might initiate. The first type of expectation was restorative messianism which yearned for the reestablishment of Israel's former glories and viewed David's kingdom as a model. The other view was characteristically more utopian. The highly apocalyptic view envisaged a future for Israel that would even be greater than that found in the past. The Kingdom of God Monotheism and election were the fundamentals of all first century Judaisms. Both elements focused on one great hope. There was one God, and he would soon act to reveal himself on behalf of the people of Israel. Israel would at last return to the exile, and paganism finally be uprooted. The restoration of the kingdom connoted the vindication of Israel, victory over the nations, peace, justice, and prosperity. The concept of the kingdom of God finds its origin in the Hebrew scriptures in multiple forms. The God of Abraham revealed himself as king in a universal sense over all nations. More narrowly, the God of Abraham revealed himself precisely as the king of Israel. The final revelation of God's kingdom, which will restore sovereignty to Israel, was significant to many Jewish groups. To achieve this presupposed the elimination of all earthly powers that rule Israel. The expectation of an imminent fulfillment of God's rule over Israel was widespread in pious Judean and Galilean circles. If Christian theology was led many to believe the apostles were solely concentrated with a spiritual mission, a concern quite to the contrary is presented in Acts. In chapter 1, verse 6, the followers of Jesus ask the following, quote, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? End quote. Jesus' circles were initially composed of Galileans whose perspective on Jewish nationalism could easily be argued to have been often more zealous than their Judean counterparts. The fact that Jesus had not wrested the government from the Romans made this a logical question for the followers of Jesus. High Maccabee regards Jesus' messianic claims throughout the Gospels those of an inspiring claimant to the throne of Israel. By giving Peter the keys to the kingdom, Maccabee argues Jesus was appointing him to be his principal minister in waiting. The continuing Jewish character and solidarity with other Judaisms in the first century are clear then. The limited extent of Jesus' concerns with the physical restoration of Israel have been widely assumed, but the Apostles' question was focused on the restoration of self-rule in Israel. While Jesus' death and resurrection were understood to address the all-important spiritual state of Israel's condition, sin and atonement, Israel's real future was still necessary, so much so that at a return to the theocratic kingship was expected. It was not limited to the redemptive work associated with the death of Jesus. The view that Jesus promulgated militant revolutionary ideas as part of the expectation of the breaking in a God's kingdom has been argued extensively. Though Jesus was not interested in leading any form of insurrection, the same cannot be so easily said of the followers of Jesus. As we read in Luke, when Jesus' followers saw that his arrest was imminent, they reacted with swords in hand. While some scholars would argue 
that one can distinguish between charismatic prophetic movements as embodied by Jesus or John the Baptist and messianic pretenders and their armed resistance movements, there is somewhat gray area that existed between the two. More importantly, as far as the ruling hierarchy and the Romans were concerned, the latter group had already taken up arms, while the other was not far from such a move and was merely in the preliminary stages of such planning, an early Jesus-oriented Jewish community. A critical aspect in appreciating the history of early Jesus-oriented Judaisms is understanding how these Jews perceived themselves in connection with greater Jewish society. Belief in Jesus the Messiah is undoubtedly the primary distinction between them and their fellow Jews. How that belief manifested itself in the dynamics of community life is extremely important. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide some parallels to terminology and events in the Book of Acts and also illuminate the terminology of Jews who endorsed Jesus' Messianic claims selected group. Other groups such as the Pharisees certainly sought to increase their numbers and influence. But the Qumran sect and Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims appeared to have maintained a greater sense of urgency and intensity in the promulgation of their respective messages. Jesus' followers and the Essenes anticipated an eschatological restoration of Israel, and both groups also believe in the necessity of national purification. Thus, there is a general assumption that the Essenes exerted some influence on the early church. Whether this resulted from a direct contact, the inclusion of Essenes in the Christian movement, or just through indirect means is unclear. Whatever the case, relationships and similarities do exist. According to the book of Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus remained in Jerusalem after the resurrection and awaited the celebration of Shavuot, the, fi- the festival of weeks. The Shavuot experience mentioned in Acts chapter 2 is usually associated with the biblical feast alone. There were, however, some festivals related to Shavuot. The temple scroll on Cape 2 at Qumran reveals that a total of three festivals of Shavuot were celebrated. The Feast of Weeks, New Grain, on the third month, 15th day. The Feast of a New Wine on the fifth month, third day and the Feast of New Oil on the 6th month, 22nd day. The existence of several Shavuot feasts may explain the correlation between the mockery displayed in Acts chapter 2, verse 13 towards the behavior of Jews who believed in Jesus at the coming of the Holy Spirit. A reference to new wine mentioned is made in chapter 2, verse 15. According to the book of Exodus, the Israelites arrived at Sinai three months after the Exodus from Egypt. This gave rise to the celebration of the giving of the Torah during the third month. There is evidence from the Qumran and the Book of Jubilees that by the late Second Temple period, many Jews were celebrating the Feast of Weeks as a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. Shavuot became a distinctive annual rite among the community at Qumran. An assembly of members was held every year while new adherents expressed their devotion to the Covenant of Torah. Its ritual is described at the beginning of the community rule. The priests and the Levites began the ceremony by blessing God. The initiates to the covenant responded in agreement. The priests continued by recalling God's mighty deeds on behalf of Israel. In a scene similar to Peter's call to repentance, the Levites recited the iniquities of Israel during the dominion of Satan. All those entering the covenant confessed, quote, We have strayed, we have disobeyed, 
We and our fathers before us have sinned, and done wickedly in walking counter to the precepts of the truth and righteousness. End quote. Peter's dialogue and call to repentance also finds parallels in the Qumranic account of their annual Shavuot assembly. Quote, then the Levites pronounced a long curse on the lot of Satan, and with the priests they solemnly adjure all those whose repentance is incomplete not to enter the covenant. Cursed be the man, they say, who enters this covenant while walking among the idols of the heart. He shall be cut off in the midst of the sons of the light, and his lot shall be among them that are cursed forever. End quote. Peter's response was focused on abandoning wickedness, evidenced through righteous deeds, undergoing ritual immersion and praying for forgiveness so that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to them. He continued his address to the crowds by appealing to the works that Jesus had performed. This Essene ritual is based on the invocation of blessings and cursings of the covenant of Torah upon the people of Israel on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lucan account of Shavuot does not make any direct allusions to the Sinai covenant, though some allusions appear to have been noted by Luke, such as a reference to all the people together in comparison to the great assembly at Sinai. Qumran community regarded the festival Shavuot as a solemn renewal of the covenant of Sinai, in which the people were admonished to repent. Qumran community regarded the festival Shavuot as a solemn renewal of the covenant of Sinai, in which the people were admonished to repent. The comparison between the book of Acts chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 19 to 21 is essential. In understanding Luke's desire to portray the Shavuot experience as a replica of the Sinai experience, the limited dispensation to the Spirit upon the elders of Israel. This dispensation was demonstrated through prophetic utterances on the part of the elders, but was extended to, to only two others still in the camp. In Acts chapter 2, in contrast, the Spirit was now not limited to the elders, but instead was placed upon everyone. Critical to Peter's statement is the issue of the forgiveness of sins and evidence of the idea among the earliest Jews who supported Jesus' claims. Messianic claims that the purpose of the ministry of Jesus was to proclaim the end of the exile. The giving of the Holy Spirit was linked with the end of the exile of Israel. The prophets of the time of the exile saw Israel's exile as a result of its transgression. For the exile to end first required that Israel's sins may be forgiven the Holy Spirit, and the Messianic Age. The Essenes appear to have developed a more personified concept of the Holy Spirit to justify the rejection of the legitimacy of the temple priesthood in Jerusalem that is found in the Hebrew Bible. They argued its presence had left the polluted temple and resided with them in their new covenant and dwelt among them in their house of holiness. Quote, For by the Spirit of the Council of Truth concerning human ways, all his iniquities will be atoned so that he may look upon the light of life. And by a Holy Spirit of the community in his truth, he will be purified from his iniquities. By a spirit of uprightness and humility, his sin will be atoned. By means of the humble submission of his soul to all the priests of God, his body will then be purified when sprinkled with waters for impurity and made holy with the waters for cleansing. End quote. The Messianic Apocalypse from Qumran indicates that miraculous signs, healing, and resurrection were similarly linked to the idea of initiating the kingdom of God. Quote, 
the heavens and earth will listen to his Messiah, and none therein will stray from the commandments of the holy ones. Seekers of the Lord, strengthen yourselves in his service. All you hopeful in your heart, will you not find the Lord in this? For the Lord will consider the pious, Hasidim, to call the righteous by name. Over the poor his spirit will hover and will renew the faithful in his power. And he will glorify the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom. He who liberates the captives restores sight to the blind, strengthens the bent. And forever I will cleave to the hopeful and in his mercy, and the fruit will not be delayed for anyone. And the Lord will accomplish glorious things which have never been. For he will heal the wounded and revive the dead, and bring good news to the poor. He will lead the uprooted and knowledge. End quote. A disfigured or maimed Jew could not be a full member of the Qumran society concerning fellowship in the temple. Restoring physical wholeness to those who lacked it brought a renewed relationship among the people of Israel. The Jewish followers of Jesus were focused on restoring individuals. Immersion within Second Temple Judaism Peter's appeal to the crowd concluded with a call to repentance and immersion in the name of Jesus the Messiah. The immersion referred to here is the immersion of John. According to the Gospel of Mark, John baptized in the desert, proclaiming immersion as a mark of repentance for forgiveness of sins. John alluded to the eventual immersion in the Holy Spirit by a following Messianic figure. In light of later Christianity, which regarded baptism as more of a conversion ceremony, what purpose did this action serve or represent among the earliest followers of Jesus? According to Josephus, the immersion of John was for the purification of the body. Quote, John was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, protest to righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, but that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. End quote. Widespread archaeological findings of mikvaot, or immersion pools in the land of Israel, have confirmed the importance of purity laws during the Second Temple period, the desire by the average observant Jew to maintain at some form of purity. While purity laws would undoubtedly have had relevance outside the Temple, they would have been much more so in the Temple precincts. The Baot were most likely located on the Temple Mount. The rabbinic tradition records the requirement that anyone entering the Temple courts should immerse themselves in a mikvah even if they were ritually clean. Josephus tells us that the people who were not clean were not allowed to enter the Temple courts. The same community viewed water as possessing a salvific quality. There is also the considerable frequency of this in the Thanksgiving hymns. John's baptism could theoretically be understood within the context of ritual purification alone. Those who have found themselves outside the ritual prescriptions of purification because of sin or perhaps even laxity might have been seen themselves as returning to the fold through the means of John's immersion. Others who were living righteously may have regarded this immersion as an extra measure, perhaps similar to the immersing in the mikvah before entering the temple courts. This position, however, does not provide a satisfactory explanation detailing the distinctive nature of John's actions.
jazz immersion, according to Josephus, was in line with other forms of immersions at that time. It maintained a clear distinction. There is not a reference that indicates that John's immersion would have been seen as invalidating other ritual immersions. Rabbinic sources refer to both ritual immersions in Mikvaot and for proselyte baptism by the same Hebrew word Tevila. The central problem with linking John's immersion to a proselyte baptism lies in the general uncertainty concerning the antiquity of this procedure. John did not convert but called those who listened to repentance. Coming Judgment in God's Kingdom John's baptism arguably symbolized washing away of sins in preparation for the coming judgment. Traditional perspectives on John's immersion have also tended to reflect the typical understanding of later Christian baptism, which resembled the initiatory process of mystery cults and religions well known within Hellenistic communities. The chief problem with this is that there is no parallel whatsoever within other Jewish movements of the period. Qumran scrolls may indicate a similar perception of immersion. The community at Qumran regarded immersion as removing impurity collected during one's absence from the community. Other Jewish immersions done for the sake of ritual cleanliness were regarded as invalid since obedience to God by the definitions was necessary for obtaining a state of ritual purity. The Jew was not part of the community was unclean. Scrolls of Qumran relate, He shall not be made righteous, quote, He shall not be made righteous in the stubborn of his heart, for though looking in, looking to the ways of the light, he is dark, shall not count himself among the perfected ones, shall not be made blameless by the acts of atonement, and not be purified by waters for impurity, or be made holy seas and rivers, or be purified by any water for ritual washing. Unclean and clean will he all the days he despises the priests of God, up until he receives instruction in the community of his council. End quote. Ritual purification became acceptable once repentance evidenced by works of righteousness was performed. The Qumran community regarded humble submissions of the soul towards God's commandments as the key to make King immersion effective. The system at Qumran seems to follow a distinctive pattern. Repentance, evidenced by justice, affecting atonement, and consequently validating bodily purification. A lack of justice would subsequently indicate a lack of inner purity, thus rendering outer cleansing for the sake of ritual purification ineffective. John's immersion concentrated on immersing repentant Jews with the notion that, preceding true repentance, they have been unclean. This premise can be further supported by briefly surveying some texts available to us from the Second Temple period. The Sublime Oracles, written during the later half of the first century, seem to preserve the pattern of repentance and bodily purification we saw previously. The Sibylline Oracles were a collection of utterances ascribed to the prophetess. There are different versions, some which appear to have had Jewish authorship and others with a Christian influence. Quote, ah, wretched morals, change these things, and do not lead the great God to all sorts of anger, but abandon daggers and groaning murders and outrages, and wash your whole bodies in perennial rivers. Stretch out your hands to heavens and ask forgiveness for your previous deeds, and make forgiveness for your previous deeds, and make propitiation for bitter impiety with words of praise. God will grant repentance and will not destroy. He will stop his wrath again, 
if you all practice honorable piety in your hearts. End quote. The pattern fits in with the mission of John, abandon wickedness evidenced through righteous deeds, undergo ritual immersion and pray for forgiveness. Ben Witterton points out that Jesus saw both John's and his ministry as part of a final attempt by God to establish a, or reestablish a proper footing between the children of Israel before the breaking in of God's dominion, where this in-breaking manifests itself as judgment or redemption depending upon how Israel responded. John's emphasis on repentance is referred to as the beginning of the gospel. John's baptism was thus setting in motion Israel's role this coming messianic era. For John, in this, we find the distinctive critical quality of his ministry. No ritual purification of the body would have been acceptable before God without complete repentance evidenced through works of righteousness found in the Torah. Josephus further clarifies what was meant by piety. Piety in the second temple period centered on the temple cult. Furthermore, obedience to God was demonstrated through the observance of Torah in general but specifically the commandments of the Sabbath, the food and purity laws, circumcision, and temple service itself, ritual purification in the temple. The continued Jewish character of the early followers of Jesus established in the book of Acts. The first followers of Jesus continued their association and devotion to the temple. Ritual purification centered on temple worship, and the God whom they served was still the historical God of Israel. Quote, The God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our forefathers. End quote. Fidelity of the followers of Jesus to the temple worship must thus be established concretely. This being the case, the Jewish followers of Jesus likely viewed John's ministry, an immersion of repentance for or towards for the remission of sins, is crucial since it uh, is apparent that the faith continued to center around the temple. Additional evidence that many Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims maintain an attachment to the temple is found in the Gospel of Matthew. There is evidence in later sources attributed to authorship by Jewish followers of Jesus that indicates a hostile attitude towards the temple and towards sacrifices. The Clementine recognitions authored by a group of Jesus-believing Jews affirm the eternal validity of Torah and circumcision. There is one exception to this affirmation, sacrifices. The author contends that the sacrifices were a temporary accommodation to the pagan environment in which the early Israelites found themselves as they left Egypt. There seems to be some support for this view in early rabbinic thought in the 4th century. Clementine recognition argued that Moses partially rectified the sacrificial problem in eliminating sacrifice to idols. Moses' ultimate successor will achieve the complete elimination of sacrifice. Quote, leaving the other half to be corrected by another at a future time by him, namely, concerning whom he said himself, A prophet shall the Lord God raise unto you. Quote. For the author of the Clementine Recognitions, baptism displaces sacrifices as a means of atonement, quote, lest they might suppose that a cessation of sacrifice, there was no remission of sins for them. He instituted baptism among them, in which they might be absolved from all their sins on the invocation of his name. End quote. The continued sacrifice performed in the temple after the death of Jesus resulted in his destruction. However, the contention of theologians who attempted to ascribe this position to the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus should be questioned. 
Oscar Skarsaun typifies a perspective espoused by many in attempting to resolve a seeming contradiction of early behavior by Jewish followers of Jesus. Skarsaun questions whether Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims but brought sacrifice in the temple on the basis we never read that they brought sacrifices. The one exception to this is found in Acts chapter 21, which describes Paul's payment for several men to complete their Nazarite vow. Skarsaun argues that Romans chapter 3 verse 25 demonstrates that Paul could have attached no atoning quality to the sacrifices, which incidentally were likely not perceived of as having such characteristic. However, Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims had other concerns than those addressed by Skarsaun and Protestant Christianity, and there is nothing to suggest the Nazarite vows presented in Acts chapter 21 were anything unique or out of the ordinary. Jewish followers of Jesus participated in the temple. This participation should not be disassociated from the primary purpose of the temple sacrifices. The Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims view the death of Jesus as an atoning act is established, but this should not lead us to anachronistically view the sacrificial perspective of the Clementine recognitions to all Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims, especially those associated with James in Jerusalem. Unlike Qumran, who appeared to have rejected the temple in Jerusalem as violated and largely did not participate in sacrifices, Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims did not estrange themselves from it. The temple appears to have remained crucial in the life of this messianic community throughout the parallel existence of both entities. While this view may present certain problems in a later review of Stephen and many of the Greek-speaking Jews of diaspora, it appears almost certain that the earliest Judeans and Galileans Jesus groups remained devoutly attached to the temple cult. The first post-Shabuot description of life and custom among the followers of Jesus in the third chapter of the book of Acts testifies to this fidelity. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray during the period of the afternoon sacrifice. These Jews who were followers of Jesus saw nothing in their belief in Jesus that would have make it necessary for them to give up their practice of Judaism. These Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims by their participation in the temple cult validated the Deuteronomic sacrificial system. The devotion of Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims to the temple should not be separated from its connection to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the focal point of world jewelry. For Jews, it was at the heart of the inhabited world, a fact that is easily understood when the western and eastern reaches of the diaspora are taken into consideration. Jewish sources of the period maintain his Eurocentric view. The importance of the city far exceeds its geographical location. The city was viewed as key to the eschatological redemption, as the book of Isaiah makes clear that the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. Jews from the diaspora will be regathered, and non-Jews from all nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. The centrality of Jerusalem in the Lucan account is clear. And since Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims viewed themselves as the center of the renewed Israel, Jerusalem was the logical place for the movement to center its operations. The continual leveling of the guilt towards the priesthood for the death of Jesus likely increased the priesthood's correct concern over this emerging messianic sect. 
even though the Pharisees exerted the most influence among the ordinary people, neither they nor any other group or sect existing during the first century could claim direct leadership or membership of more than six or seven thousand members. The Jews who supported Jesus' Messianic claims had grown to more than eight thousand, and the growing approval of Jews who supported Jesus' Messianic claims because of their healing endeavors is evident in Acts chapter 5, the social organization of early Christianity. The number of Jews who supported Jesus' Messianic claims grew significantly. Luke introduces Ananias and Sapphira as an example of the social makeup of the early community. The couple sold a piece of property and prepared to lay the full amount before the apostles. Why they withheld part of the proceeds is unclear, but it appears they might have sought to achieve some status among Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims without divesting themselves of the entire amount. Some correlation exists between the regulations concerning personal property at Qumran and the situation in Acts. The Manual of Discipline, the community's rule book, required a candidate who had completed two years of probation to merge his property with that of the group. The penalty for deception concerning property, however, was much less drastic than the incident involving Ananias and Sapphira. An initiate who withheld property was punished by having his food rations diminished and by exclusion from the community's sacred meal for a year. The critical difference in regarding this passage is that the Qumran community required the handing over of property within its highly controlled communal life. In contrast, however, this deception was not punished by death. Furthermore, our reading from the Book of Acts depicts the surrender of property as a purely voluntary act. Nevertheless, this does not contradict the existence of a formal community of property within the earliest days of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Community property could have been both voluntary and formally organized. It is conceivable that within the framework of the community, there existed an inner group which practiced community of property, but that this practice was not extended to all members. This is the case, and Ananias and Sapphira were under no compulsion to enter this inner group, but they desired to do so, then its rules had to be obeyed. Peter's question should be considered more closely. Joining the Essenes property sharing community involved an extensive procedure in the course of which property was to be surrendered on a provisional basis at first. The Essenes initiates would have indeed been reminded that after handing over property, it remained theirs for a year until their decision and permission to fully join the community, if therefore passed into the control of the community, but not into the community's possession. The initiate who secretly kept away some of his property expressed a severe degree of distrust of the community, and thus surrendered his property through an act of lying, since everyone understood him to be transferring full amount. They were important trust factor centering in the essence of the ritual was violated. The security of his property was ensured by the community, who would exercise the trust of holding his property in his name until his initiation process was complete or departed. Peter's reference to Ananias' property remaining his before it was sold, and after the sale in his power, may reflect the very description we have described among the Essenes. This approach to Acts Chapter 5 is confirmed not only in the pages of the scrolls at Qumran, but also within the accounts of the Hellenistic Pythagorean community at Croton and Magna Gratia. Here, specific mention was made concerning the return of the candidate's funds should he not proceed to membership. While any attempt to assertion to link influence between these two groups is questionable, a similarity 
and entrance procedures most likely justifies the view that this procedure evolved as the only practical means by which to successfully integrate candidates for whom the transfer of property would have been difficult. Such policies were conducted without coercion, but with an understanding that this benefited the health of the community. The Rise of Hellenistic Jesus-Oriented Judaism The Jewish followers of Jesus found their message accepted by many diaspora-born Jews. The Hellenistic Jews we encounter in the seventh chapter of the Book of Acts were the byproduct of not only linguistic but cultural and philosophical influences distinct both from Roman and Greek society. The appointment of seven deacons to serve in what appears to have been a purely logistical role may shed light on a more significant revelation of the early Messianic community. Stephen, one of the seven chosen to serve on behalf of the Greek Jewish community, became actively involved in the open debate in synagogues with non followers of Jesus. It's the first time a debate in a synagogue environment is recorded. Economic dispute over property arrangement distribution reveals that just as Qumran, all had direct access to funds. An unprivileged group does not contradict an organized community of property, and those widows may have formed a distinct group, which incidentally may have had a right to receive daily sustenance by adding to the contributions of the community. The scenes provide a point of reference once again, for the situation in Acts chapter 6, Philo informs us that about the Essene process of distribution. Quote, he, the treasurer, takes these wages and at once buys what is necessary and provides food in abundance and anything else which human life requires. Thus, having each day a common life and a common table, they are content with the same conditions. Lovers of frugality who shun expensive luxury is a disease of both body and soul. End quote. The very heart of the conflict between Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews was over the issue of monetary distribution. It is clear that many poor joined the Jews who believed in Jesus. Indeed, in the second century, different Jesus-oriented Judaisms were often labeled under the one term of Ebionism. The word Ebion reflects the Hebrew word meaning poor. The proclamation of Jesus as the real King of Israel only furthered the political aspirations of freedom and independence held by countless others. What was the relationship between the Hellenists and the Hebrews? The failure to adequately address distribution of food among the Hellenistic widows on a daily basis should be considered. It is rather strange that only the Christian Jewish women would have been excluded from their share on a regular basis. Luke does not address the reason for this oversight, and subsequently some scholars argue that this should be seen as a manifestation of sharper differences between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Some scholars believe that such a division existing between Hellenists and Hebrews was primarily attributable to linguistic distinctions. While both groups were possessed bilingual members, the lack of common language could easily be created severe problems from the onset of the community's existence. Most Jews in Judea, Samaria, Galilee in the first century would indeed have known some Greek since it functioned as lingua franca of the day. Some scholars question whether the majority of the Hellenists have lacked proficiency in Hebrew or Aramaic. David Sim argues that the Hellenists may have grown frustrated with the Hebrew Aramaic language services of the original Jerusalem community, eventually forming their own. Furthermore, Sim points to the differences, such as the use of distinct scriptures and their respective exegetical traditions, more in line with that of their synagogue affiliation. 
Also, the sphere of authority yielded by these new members appears to have indeed extended beyond waiting tables. The rise of a clear Hellenistic leadership may point us in the direction of recognizing a growing rift between the two parties in Jerusalem. The possibility of Hellenist community operating somewhat as an independent entity may explain in part the reason why the apostles were not included in the persecution at hand. The contention that the Hebrews were not included in this persecution has been disputed by scholars who point to the various persecutions witnessed in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to 22, chapter 5, verse 17 to 41, chapter 12, verse 1 through 11, against the Hebrew party. Nevertheless, the continued existence of the original Jesus party for 40 years should suggest that most of the incidents in question were not necessarily widespread, or at the very least comparatively minor in contrast to this incident. Something important can be extracted from this. It would appear that the Hebrew community in Jerusalem enjoyed some form of friendly relationship with its neighbors in Jerusalem. Saul's initial appearance and persecution must also be coupled with the arrest of Stephen, subsequent approval, and active participation in Stephen's execution. In this sense, Paul may have very well represented a fundamentalistic Pharisaic extremity, maintaining not only an anti-Jesus sentiment, but a more fundamental disdain for Hellenistic Judaism, which stood in contrast to the more rigid nature of Pharisaic Judaism. Stephen's debate Stephen's debate concerning the Messianic claims attributed to Jesus gave rise to a bitter confrontation, which resulted in his arrest and trial before the Sanhedrin. Stephen was accused of the following charges. 1 that he had spoken blasphemy against Moses and God. 2. That he had spoken against the sacred place, the temple, and the Torah. 3. That he maintained that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs. Marcel Simon regarded Stephen's group as reflecting the anti-cult perspectives later demonstrated in the Clementine Recognitions. A possible analogy exists in the withdrawal of the Essenes and the original Sadducee dynasty from Jerusalem and the temple cult, after the rise of Hasmonean priesthood. The basis for claiming that Stephen had made anti-temple remarks lies in the following, quote, In the desert our ancestors had the tent of testimony, just as the one who had spoken to Moses had ordered him to make it, after the model that he had seen. But it was Solomon who built the house for it, yet the Most High dwells not in buildings made by human hands. End quote. Stephen's speech had reviewed of Israel's history, exalting the patriarchs, the role of Moses, but containing a degree of sentiment that might have been regarded as anti-temple. Israel's period falling away in the wilderness was further recounted by the substitution of the temple of its own making for a tabernacle that God had shown Israel. Some commentators hold that Stephen's speech is representative of sentiment among some Jews who supported Jesus' Messianic claims, especially those of Hellenistic background. The testimony given by Luke seems to indicate more of a reaction by an angry mob than by the Sanhedrin. Same day, a persecution broke out immediately against the community of Jewish followers of Jesus after the death of Stephen. The 8th chapter of the book of Acts states, quote, And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. End quote. Such a police action of this magnitude is more likely to have occurred in some time of reduced Roman activity. And as a consequence, the high priest and council were more at liberty to exercise greater civil control. A likely time for this to have occurred 
is during the winter of the year 36 through 37 of the Common Era. Vitellius had ordered Pilate to return to Rome. Why such a great persecution did not include the apostles, the very ringleaders of this new movement, is difficult to ascertain. It seems unlikely that only the apostles would have escaped persecution. Arguably, others of an Aramaic-speaking party would have also escaped persecution. Does the primary thrust of the attack would have centered on the Hellenists? While I will not go this far in my assessment of the relationship between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, as David Sim does, there is something to be considered in this following assessment. Quote, but it might also suggest that the Hebrews agreed with this punitive action. The fact that they were left unscathed implies that at one time did they identify themselves with their Christian associates who were under attack or come to their defense. End quote. Indeed, it will appear that rather easy solution from the perspective of Sadducean dominated Sanhedrin have been to arrest the principal proponents of the Jewish Christian movement. A partial answer may be found by looking back to chapter 4 of the book of Acts. The apostles had gained considerable admiration from the masses. The fact that Stephen was a foreign Jew identified with other Jews who supported Jesus' messianic claims is probably very much of his, to his detriment. The council did not need to fear popular sympathy with the accused. Another possible response to the exclusion of the apostles and this round of persecution may also lie in their identity as Hebrews versus Hellenistic communities' philosophical and theological perceptions of Torah. Stephen's attack on the hierarchy had long been perceived as representing an original polemic by Jewish followers of Jesus against the temple. Let's also remember the more symbolic role that the temple cult played in the Hellenistic Judaism. Spiritualizing tendency among many Hellenists may have translated to different levels of Torah observance. This tendency coupled with their new messianic beliefs has led scholars like Martin Hengel to argue that the Hellenists gravitated towards a very enthusiastic scatological expression of faith. Consequently, Hengel, because of their charismatic nature, they may have taken up the various scatological criticisms made by Jesus of the Temple and expanded upon them. If this theory is correct, then considerable problems would have arisen between the Hellenists and the rest of the Jewish community, including other Jewish followers of Jesus over the interpretation of the Torah. Gerd Ludemann argues that the exodus of the Hellenists from Jerusalem was in fact due to the criticisms of Torah, and particularly the Temple cult. The closest resemblance in Jewish history for an exodus from Jerusalem is the withdrawal of the group of Leontopolis in the 2nd century before the Common Era, and the departure of another group to Damascus during the same period. Interestingly, this alienation was likely caused by differing attitudes towards the temple cult and may reflect the differing perspectives of Hellenists towards the cult in Jerusalem.